When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. My chimney came down. I was afraid it was going to come through the roof and crush me. There's just debris everywhere. Um, my yard looks like a, like a war zone. You know, it, it, it looks disastrous. I came here in the mid-70s. I was on the police department for almost 25 years. Saw a lot of storms here. This is by far the worst storm I have ever witnessed. I promise you I'm never going to stay for another storm uh, ever again here. However, I am one of the lucky ones. Recovery efforts begin after utter devastation in parts of Florida, while millions more people are now at risk as Ian moves north. Also tonight, he isn't tossing paper towels, but Governor Ron DeSantis is handling this hurricane in a weirdly Trumpy way. And what we're learning about Ginny Thomas's meeting with the January 6th committee when she wasn't texting the White House in the days leading up to the insurrection, she was encouraging states to reverse Trump's embarrassing defeat. We begin tonight with Hurricane Ian decimating southwest Florida as one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the U.S. And now the state begins the colossal task of picking up the pieces. Rescue teams are still looking for survivors as we get a first glimpse at the destruction. And from what we've seen so far... It is staggering. Take a look. This is Fort Myers, homes completely destroyed, while streets are virtually non-existent. One resident told the Tampa Bay Times the island is like somebody took an atom bomb and dropped it. A section of the only bridge to get onto Sanibel Island was completely severed from the storm surge, making rescues only possible by boat. And in Lee County, you can see neighborhoods almost completely crushed, homes leveled and debris scattered. Even central Florida, far inland, is feeling the effects. In Orlando, home to Disney World, major flooding prompted emergency rescues at a nursing home. Three hospitals in Lee County were also forced to evacuate patients due to a lack of running water. As nearly two million in the state are without power. Right now, at least 10 people have died in the wake of the storm. But that number is likely to go up. President Biden today gave a sobering warning about what to expect. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. The numbers of still are still unclear, but we're hearing early reports of what may be substantial loss of life. For those who survived the storm, emotions are still running high. One woman told NBC's Carrie Sanders about the horrors that she witnessed trying to protect her husband, who is hospital bedridden and paralyzed. I took some blankets and I put holes in them with the scissors and I zip tied them to the hospital bed and then I took a big tarpaulin that had grommets and I zip tied that over it and then I put pillows in plastic bags and I duct taped them to the top of the the, uh, sideboard and then I put pillows between the sideboard and the window because I didn't want them to to get cut up to death if the window blew in and then I put a life jacket on him so that if if the water came he wouldn't drown he would float uh, quite an ordeal for you to go through that I mean it's, but I don't want him to die no, no of course and and he's 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 okay right he's alive he's he's traumatized but he's alive 
And Ian isn't done yet. Now a Category 1 hurricane again. The storm is currently making its way up the East Coast, expected to hit South Carolina tomorrow. Orlando is just one of the cities that have been hit with high winds and major flooding from Hurricane Ian. NBC's Jesse Kirsch is in Orlando. Jesse, what are, we, what are you seeing? Hey, 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 Joe, yesterday when you and I spoke, we were looking at massive downpours behind me. All that water has to go somewhere. And this is one of the places it ended up. This is a neighborhood in Orlando. These are homes. And you can see that many of them are currently at least partially submerged. We're going to push in on a basketball hoop out there because that's an easy reference point for height. We know the rim of a basketball hoop is 10 feet tall. We don't know if that's regulation, but you can figure that's approximately around 10 feet up. And you can see that the basketball hoop, the beam, is at least partially submerged in these waters. Officials say in this community alone, they made around 30 rescues. And this is one of the communities that includes mobile homes. And that is one of the types of homes that officials were most concerned about here yesterday. That's one group of people that officials had really been stressing they should be making their way to hardened shelters to ride out the storm. And so obviously, uh, those concerns uh, proving uh, to come to fruition here. For people who aren't familiar with the Orlando area, obviously, in general, with storm waters, you do not want to be wading through it. You do not know what you could step on. You do not know what waits for you under the surface. But what uh, almost certainly waits under the surface in some waters here in Orlando are alligators. So that's just one more reason for people to not be trying to go in there to see what damage is done. We've got a little wind picking up here right now, but it has mostly been dry here this afternoon to into evening, and the wind gusts have largely subsided, which is good news because if the wind picks up over certain levels, officials say rescue, or sorry, not rescue, infrastructure crews, teams that are trying to repair what was damaged, will have to put a pause on their efforts. But I can tell you, even though it has largely been dry here this afternoon and evening, the water level in this community really has not receded. So we are looking at water that is somewhat stagnant here right now, Joy, with so many people right now in the dark. Joy. Jesse Kirsch, and thanks for reminding folks, yes, just because you're in a residential area does not mean that there are not alligators. That is Florida. Um, Thank you very much. Let's bring in NBC meteorologist Bill Karens. Bill, where is this thing going? Uh, Unfortunately, it's heading to the Carolinas, and it's heading stronger than we expected once again. I mean, this storm has been an overachiever ever since it went through western Cuba. And then, of course, what you know, just the horrendous images of what a catastrophic, strong Category 4 hurricane does. You've seen that in the whole beginning of your show. And now everyone in the Carolinas is like, what's it going to bring to us? What are we going to look like when this is done? Do we need to evacuate? Well, as far as evacuations go, listen to your emergency managers. And if they tell you to go, go. Then come back when after it's gone, you know, Saturday night or maybe Sunday for a lucky if the damage isn't too bad. So it's a hurricane again. It's over warm water, but it's not going to like quickly blow up like a major hurricane or anything else. The hurricane Center thinks it'll get a little bit stronger overnight, but it shouldn't be anything like, you know, you're going to wake up in the morning and go, I can't believe how strong it is. You know, most likely a solid Category 1, at worst maybe bordering on a Category 2. So here's that forecast from the Hurricane Center. This was at 5 p.m. The new update comes at 11 p.m. this evening, and they shifted the center cone a little bit. This has a large wind field. We're going to have tropical storm forest winds from Jacksonville all the way to the Outer Banks because it has a huge wind field. Those are all the areas that have a chance for power edges. I care about the center line because the worst storm surge will be to the right of that at landfall. That's the onshore winds. That was over Charleston. They shifted it a little bit closer in between Charleston and Georgetown. So that's important for storm surge. Nothing else. That's the only thing that really matters for that. And 80-mile-per-hour winds. And this would be right around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. What's going to be interesting about this storm is that the high 
highest winds and all the rain are before landfall. So you're going to wake up to just gusty winds, pouring rain, maybe power outages. And by the time the storm clears the coast, that's when actually the weather will be improving. Then it rains itself out heading towards Charlotte, North Carolina. All of our computers kind of pinpoint. This is at noon, very close to the areas from Charleston and just to the east. That hurricane warnings, of course, you'd expect. Enjoy it. As far as storm surge goes, and we just saw what storm surge damage can do. Um, it looks like four to seven feet is the worst case scenario for the central uh, coastline of Charleston. In 2017, Hurricane Matthew did some pretty significant damage with a seven-foot storm surge. So we're hoping we don't get to the peak of these numbers. We'll find out tomorrow afternoon. We will indeed. Uh, meteorologist Bill Karens of NBC, thank you very much. Sir. Thanks, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Joining me on the phone now is Amy Patterson, manager of Collier County, Florida, which does include the city of Naples. Uh, give us a sense, please, if you would, how extensive the damage is in Collier County and Naples. We heard the name Naples a lot yesterday when we were talking about uh, places that were inundated by this storm. Uh, sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, we have just begun our damage assessment today after we're wrapping up any search and recovery that was ongoing. Uh, we did take a substantial amount of storm surge along the coast, um, and the power of water is, is quite devastating. So um, as the days go on, we're going to have a better idea what that damage looks like. But there's, there is significant damage along the coast, both to some of our infrastructure as well as some bottom floors of, of structures. We have uh, heard that we're going to, as time goes on, get a sense of um, how deadly this hurricane turned out to be. Do you have an assessment of the injuries um, or the unfortunate uh, deaths uh, that took place there, or is it still too early to know? It's really too early to know. We have had some reports of deaths, but the facts are unclear, and they, those have to still be validated by our medical examiner. Uh, it appears that we've been fortunate, at least here in Collier County, compared to some of the things we're hearing from our neighbors to the north, but we'll know more in the upcoming days. Collier County Manager Amy Patterson, we wish you, uh, wish you and your community very well. Thank you very much for being here. Let's bring Thank in you. Marcus Coleman. Cheers. Uh, let's bring in Marcus Coleman from FEMA. He's the director of the DHS Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Uh, and, and thank you so much for being here, uh, Director Coleman. Uh, what is the federal government to do? Because the storm's not over. It's traveling up, as you can see from those forecasts that Bill Karen's showing that map. It's still moving. And there's still a lot of standing water and still a lot of e emerging damage. At this stage, what is the role of the federal government? Good evening, and thank you for having me. So the role of the federal government is to continue to listen to our local leaders, our local officials, and the community to ensure that we are pre-positioning commodities and people uh, to meet the immediate needs of the life-saving and life-sustaining mission, and that's exactly what we're doing alongside our colleagues in Florida. But we are also uh, working closely with communities in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and all other states that are bracing for impacts from the remnants of Hurricane Ian. And we know that there are about 2.6 million Floridians who are without power right now. We've had about 5,000 National Guard troops that have been deployed to Florida to try to help out. Uh, in addition to the rescues that have to be done, um, unfortunately, water being incredibly deadly and trying to figure out the locations of people who might have fled places like mobile homes. Is there anything that the sort of world outside of Florida can really do at this point? What is needed? So that the number one thing that people can do in Florida that are impacted in those affected counties, dialing 
888-382-3362. Signing up for disaster assistance for those that are able with internet access, they can also go to disasterassistance.gov. Um, I was actually on the phone prior to this interview with pastors and bishops from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and that church is supporting their bishops, their pastors, and their community members with pertinent information because we know not everybody has access to power. People are still trying to get the latest updates and information. And so we want to ensure that FEMA, as well as our full federal families, providing the best source of trusted information on how people can get the help that they need and where they can go to get additional resources from our non-government partners. And what do people do? I mean, we know that three to four hospitals were impacted, particularly in Lee County, which was pretty much the hardest hit, um, and had to evacuate patients. Where do those patients go? Um, how is it like sort of ensured that they will be properly cared for? And what can people do if they have a medical emergency in this kind of a situation? Well, through our FEMA Office of Disability Integration and Coordination and our colleagues at Health and Human Services, we are working closely with uh, hospitals, independent living centers, and ensuring that those people with disabilities and those with access and functional needs are getting the care that they need. Uh, we were co-located uh, prior to landfall with the state of Florida and continue to, to use uh, the data and information we have to ensure that the medically fragile and socially vulnerable are getting the care that they need. This is a time for us to continue again, listening to community needs so we can adjust our resources and commodities as appropriate, but making sure that we also keep people first in everything that we do as they continue to go on what's going to continue to be a long road uh, to recovery. Uh, Marcus Coleman from FEMA, thank you for shouting out the churches. The good churches really do kick in in these times of need. Some of them were impacted, though, too. So uh, we're wishing everyone well and hopefully that people will uh, be able to recover from this soon. Thank you very much, sir. Um, coming thank up you. next on the readout, cheers. Coming up next on the readout, Jenny Thomas was proudly smiling today as she headed in for her interview with the January 6th committee. Being accused of trying to help overturn an election is nothing to smile about, Jenny. Uh, and she, by the way, still believes that the election was stolen. So there's that. We'll be right back. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Hurricane Ian delayed this week's public hearing of the January 6th committee, but, it is, but its important work continues. Today, Virginia Ginny Thomas, longtime right-wing activist and wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was interviewed in person by the committee for three and a half hours. I mean, it's about daggone time since Mrs. Thomas has a lot to explain. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said that she answered some questions and expressed that she still believed the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, which is exactly what she argued in numerous texts to then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the days and weeks following the election, which is around the same time Mrs. Thomas was also pressuring state lawmakers in Arizona and Wisconsin to choose their own fake electors. 
and of particular interest to the committee. Mrs. Thomas's emails with Trump lawyer John Eastman, who came up with the plot to keep Trump in power in his infamous coup memo, urging Vice President Mike Pence to simply overturn the election all by himself. It is also worth noting that John Eastman once clerked for Clarence Thomas. Regarding her interview today, Jenny Thomas's attorney released a statement saying, quote, she answered a lot of the committee's questions as she told the committee her minimal and mainstream activity focused on ensuring that reports of fraud and irregularities were investigated. Beyond that, she played no role in any events in the 2020 election results, unquote. Weird use of the word mainstream. Joining me now is Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Thank you for being here, Nick. You know, this is so unusual. It's sui generis. There is, I can't even name the wife of, or spouse of any other Supreme Court justice uh, ever in history. Uh, this woman has been a longtime right-wing activist, and she seemed to have been actively involved, including emailing her husband's former clerk, John Eastman. What do you make of all of it? And what do you think the probative value of talking to her might have been? Well, it's hard to say what the probative value is going to be. I mean, my big question is, you know, who asked her to call these legislators in uh, Wisconsin and Arizona to get them to basically vote in these fake Trump electors? Um, You know, that's my big question. I mean, that's the part that is really concerning. I mean, she could not have done that on her own. It's hard to believe that she was acting as a free agent there. Uh, And the other big concern, obviously, is that she's a wife of a Supreme Court justice. And Clarence Thomas, while she was doing all this, uh, he was the one dissenting vote when the January 6th committee was trying to get all of Trump's records um, from the White House that were at the archives. Uh, And he was the only one that dissented. And then when Pennsylvania... Um, tried to, the Republicans tried to appeal um, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, which gave an extra three days to count votes. Not a big deal, considering the circumstances. Uh, he went on and wrote this dissent that basically panned, um, you know, absentee ballots, uh, and and basically came up with this idea that there's a more more chances for fraud with absentee ballots than regular voting. All of which is absolutely crazy, but it's the same thing that she's been espousing. So you've got a real conflict of interest here. It's just very unusual. I can't remember any situation in the court uh, where a spouse has taken a political view that is basically right on the money with her husband, and they both claim they never talk about this stuff, which I find completely absurd. And I'll note that uh, Chairman Thompson did say that she was a witness. They weren't accusing her of anything. Um, they would include something if it was if there's something of merit, they'll include it in the next hearing. That's the notes from uh, Chairman Benny Thomas. But she, you just named the, the the less cuckoo things that she was doing. Here are some of the things that she was texting to the chief of staff to the president, Mark Meadows. This is two days after the election. Quote. Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now in overcoming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. This person is a conspiracy theorist. She she doesn't seem to be wrapped too tight um, when it comes to her versions of reality. Is it possible that somebody like a John Eastman would collaborate with a Supreme Court justice's wife? To what end? Do you think that this could have been because they thought that eventually the election might end up in the Supreme Court? 
end up in front of the Supreme Court? Well, I think they were certainly trying to do that. They were trying to get it into the courts, even though every single court, including the Supreme Court, knocked them down. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, if she probably had a fairly close relationship with Eastman beforehand. I mean, the judges always have yearly events with their clerks. The clerks yeah. that are clerk for somebody in the past, they always keep in touch with their judge. Um, and I'm sure she met him in the course of that. I mean, the birds of a feather flock together. I mean, they're both crazy in that sense. So it doesn't surprise me that they would be feeding off each other. And it doesn't surprise me that they would be talking. I mean, the real question is, how much influence does she have on what Clarence Thomas is writing on the Supreme Court? And what was she doing talking to legislators uh, in this criminal conspiracy to try and get fake electors for Trump elected in Wisconsin and Arizona? That is the key question. The, the other issue with Clarence Thomas, I mean, the, the, the issue is you can assume that somebody's spouse has their own life and does their own thing. Fine. But like you said, there's symmetry between what he's voting on and what she's doing. And then also there is this. Back in 2011, this is a story that has resurfaced. Between 2003 and 2007, Virginia Thomas, a longtime conservative activist, earned nearly $700,000 from the Heritage Foundation, which you've heard that name a lot, according to Common Causes Review of their, of their foundation, the foundation's IRS records. Clarence Thomas failed to note the income in his Supreme Court financial disclosures. So he's kind of hiding her income, not being honest about it. But there's nothing anyone well, can yeah, do I mean, because there are no ethics rules in the Supreme Court. No, no, it just shows you what's going on. They're all trying to get close to Clarence Thomas and influence Clarence Thomas through Ginny. That's what's going on. That's why they're paying her. That's why Mark Meadows was taking your calls. If you look at those 29 emails that go back and forth, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me if her name was just Ginny Jones, she would not have gotten past the right. operator at the White House, Right. I mean, they're all trying to influence Clarence Thomas through her. And that yeah. is what's really going on. And that's why this is so evil. Well, if we, we, don't, we don't have much time, but if, do you have any comment on this uh, special master, the Eileen Cannon, this judge who has essentially delayed, um, allowed a delay in Trump having to file an affidavit saying whether or not he believed anything was planted in his house? She's given him another bligh. Yeah, I think that the government agreed to part of that. Um, just because they've had a hard time getting a vendor that was going to put all these documents um, in, in online. Uh, and the reason was because none of these vendors would want to engage in business with Donald Trump. They didn't want to <laughs> sign a contract with him. And I'm sure it's because they knew they wouldn't be paid. They wouldn't even be paid. though under her order, he could be held in contempt if he yeah. doesn't pay, which means he could go to jail. So it's crazy. <laughs> the whole none thing. of this yeah. is very good for Donald Trump. None of it. It's just going to keep this whole matter in the spotlight. Yeah. It's just going to remind people right up through the midterms what a crook this guy is. Uh, very succinctly said. Nick Ackerman, thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate you. Okay, coming up, the aftermath of Hurricane Ian is a huge leadership test for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who opposed, opposed federal aid after Hurricane Sandy hit New York and New Jersey. Stay with us. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. 
Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. This guy is uh, professional grade damage. What was your first reaction when you came out and you saw this? Thank you, Jesus, <laughs> that it didn't go because it could have fallen on my house, could have fallen on the apartment that I have here. As Florida battles one of the most powerful hurricanes ever to hit the United States, Governor Ron DeSantis is, well, he's running for president. Not officially, not yet. But nothing like a disaster and national cameras to boost one's White House ambitions. I mean, they did learn that from Daddy Trump. But DeSantis seems to have added some of his own spin to the act. I mean, you would be forgiven if you're a Florida taxpayer for wondering why Florida's first lady, Casey DeSantis, who nobody elected, was standing beside the governor at a press conference to boost a private disaster fund just weeks after her husband splurged taxpayer money, the interest from COVID relief funds, by the way, to ship brown folks from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Um, and actually, speaking of press conferences, I guess we have to go to one now because Ron DeSantis is giving one. And here we are. Because of the, the massive wind speed and the storm surge and deposited uh, in a body of water, there was cars floating uh, in the middle uh, of the water. Some of the homes were were total losses. I would say the most significant damage that I saw was on uh, Fort Myers Beach. Uh, some of the homes were wiped out and some of it was just concrete slabs. Of course, there were damage to, to some of our infrastructure, particularly the Sanibel Causeway. There were uh, breaks in that in multiple different areas. It was interesting. The pylons on the water where you had that part of the bridge, that actually was was good. It was the point where it was on a sandbar that just got totally wiped away or from the mainland, you know, there was breaks there. So that's going to require major, major uh, uh, overhaul and potentially a complete rebuild. They're going to look at it and see um, that's the only way on Sanibel and Captiva Island. So the operations to help people there have been uh, mostly by air. Uh, in all told search and rescue operations, it started in the wee hours of the morning. As soon as the winds died down enough to where it was safe, uh, you had Coast Guard assets, you had urban search and rescue teams. We've had the National Guard out assisting people. Uh, there have been more than 700 confirmed rescues, and there's likely uh, many more than that uh, that will be confirmed as more data comes in. Uh, people have been rescued from places like Fort Myers, Fort Myers Beach, Sanibel, uh, Marco Island, as well as the Barrier Island in Charlotte County. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of um, calls coming in as the storm was really raging yesterday. Uh, people uh, who did not evacuate were hunkered down. There was storm surge. There was a lot of, of, um, uh, of apprehension, understandably. When 
Initially, the first responders came this morning. People would wave them down, uh, whether they were by helicopter, boat, or high water vehicle. Now what they're finding is on places like Sanibel, most of the residents are just waving thank you for coming, but they say that they're fine uh, and that they're staying put. Now, I think that there's going to be issues with being on some of those islands uh, because they're not going to have services like we expect uh, for quite some time, given the limitations of transportation. Uh, but nevertheless, that, that's a sign that, that some of the folks who did ride it out uh, ha- are stabilized uh, in in their home. Uh, they are first responders are doing uh, targeted searches, just going home by home, checking to see um, if people are okay, and then responding to specific reports uh, if they're missing loved ones. Uh, there will, can, of course, be uh, many more rescues that are added uh, to the tiller. Uh, now, we we absolutely expect to have mortality from this hurricane, but I just caution people. You know, there's a process by where that is confirmed, um, and there's people. I know the people have said certain things. Um, in terms of confirmed, uh, that will be made apparent over the coming days. Um, but but I think the things that have been said out there that is not something that has been confirmed at this at this juncture. Uh, of course, we have. Uh, Thousands and thousands of people on the ground uh, working to restore power, uh, opening the roads, bringing in food and water, and restoring communications. Talking with uh, local folks in Lee County, uh, probably the biggest immediate hurdle that they're facing is their county water utility had a big water main break. Uh, that is necessary to be fixed in order to provide basic water services uh, for the residents of the county. So they have been working to troubleshoot it. They requested uh, the state to enlist federal support to help diagnose and potentially fix the problem. Uh, So we worked with FEMA and and Gratia and the Army Corps of Engineers uh, came in. I mean, they came in pretty early. Um, I think I think I think Kevin called them maybe like three in the morning. They were in southwest Florida from Jacksonville by early this afternoon. And so they're helping to diagnose and hopefully be able to remedy that. But that's going to be something that's very, very important for the county uh, to get fixed. In the meantime, uh, we're assisting healthcare facilities uh, to provide uh, working water because they need that to be able to take care of their patients. So we're shuttling water from Lakeland into healthcare facilities. Uh, right now, there are about 20 trucks en route with 60,000 gallons of water for a total of 1.2 million gallons of water. And I think they have been able to fix some of the water-ish. One of the, one of the three hospitals has actually been able to fix the water problem there. So that's good news. Uh, Port Tampa, Port Everglades, um, there the fuel is flowing in to some of our major ports. And so you're seeing a lot of fuel now flowing throughout the state. More than 330,000 gal- 30, gallons of fuel have already been moved in to southwest Florida. I actually saw a couple of the gas stations open in, in the Fort Myers area when we were there today. Uh, with this fuel, the state of Florida set up six fuel depots to fully support all first response efforts. And we think the remaining ports in the state of Florida uh, will open between sometime tomorrow and sometime on Saturday. Uh, there's been a massive amount of, of uh, supplies staged. We're also bringing more into the region, more ambulances, more food, water, and ice, more generators, more uh, actually into service mechanical shops uh, to help to repair and maintain emergency vehicles, which, you know, they're in rugged conditions when you're going through uh, water and others, bringing in more tarps, bringing in kits for parents of infants and toddlers uh, to give them 10 days uh, uh, worth of support uh, and bringing in more high water ladders. Now, as of 6 p.m., 
There are 2.6 million approximately reported power outages through throughout the state of Florida, and that was anticipated. Uh, so far, compared to this morning, uh, 200,000 accounts have been restored in southwest Florida, uh, 28,000 in Lee, 62,000 in Sarasota, 14,000 in Collier, 33,000 in Manatee, 12,000 in Charlotte, and 44,000 in Hillsborough have been restored. Of course, the pre-staging for this was over 42,000. And I can tell you, when we were in Charlotte, uh, the reports were generally positive that a lot of that infrastructure had been able to weather the storm. You still have to work, obviously, to reconnect the power. Uh, but in some areas, you may need to rebuild from the ground up. In other areas where the infrastructure maintained integrity, uh, you would be more just trying to to, to rehook everything. So that's that's a 24-7 process. So if anybody sees uh, some of the utility trucks pulled over somewhere, and, and maybe someone getting rest, understand they're working constant shifts uh, and everyone's on the clock the whole time and they don't actually ever have a time where people are not working. So we really appreciate that because we understand how important it is uh, for folks to have those basic services uh, resume. Uh, there have, of course, been damages to cell phone towers, particularly in places like Lee uh, County. Uh, the the uh, co telecom companies have brought in, they, they earmarked 100 cell phone towers uh, being set up, uh, and, and many of those are being set up in Southwest Florida. I've been able to speak with the CEOs of both AT&T and T-Mobile. While there have been damages, a lot of their infrastructure uh, has uh, has weathered the storm uh, fairly well. So while there may need to be repairs, uh, you know, they feel good about getting up service. Um, and I know some people do have service in those areas, and, and we were able to see that. FDOT had more than 1,200 personnel on the ground, and, and I'm happy to report the road situation is, is by and large really good. I think if I was just talking with Kevin before we came out here, if we were here yesterday at like noon, uh, thinking about what the road situation would look like, uh, I think we thought that there would have been way, way more roads that were blocked by debris. Uh, of course, we did have the Sanibel. I mean, there are there are issues. But there is also a lot of roads where the traffic is flowing on I-75 without a problem, and most of the other roads um, are doing really well. Sunshine Skyway Bridge has reopened, and so we are happy to see that. Uh, most school districts throughout the state will be reopening either Friday or Monday. Obviously, Lee and, and some of those areas uh, may be a little bit different calculation for them. Uh, we're thankful that FEMA has activated individual assistance for Floridians who've been affected by this storm. If you are in need of help recovering, visit disasterassistance.gov or call 1-800-621-3362. Uh, FEMA has approved our request to add some of the central Florida counties into the individual assistance. Uh, Kevin will have more details on that, but we appreciate that because you look at the images, like you can see a house that's been totaled on Fort Myers Beach, and obviously it's a very sad thing to see. You can see boats that have been flipped over or cars that have been flipped over, and, and those are very striking images. Uh, but as the storm has moved through the state, it has caused a, a lot of problems with really historic flooding in, in parts of central Florida and into northeast Florida. And so it's important that those folks uh, also have the ability to get assistance if they need it. Uh, over 8,700 people have already registered with FEMA. Um, if you're uh, going to make a claim, take a 
picture. If you've had flooding, take a picture of the water line on your house. Make sure you're documenting the damage. Jimmy Patronis, our chief financial officer, is going to be doing insurance villages uh, at these disaster recovery sites. So if you go in, now you don't need to go in to get FEMA assistance. You can do it online. But if you have questions, you go in. Uh, you can have people from the different insurance carriers. Uh, Jimmy's also going to help people who have uh, NFIP flood policies uh, to be able to file those claims and get those claims paid uh, as soon as possible. And, and we uh, expect that, that that will be done without without much delay from, from the insurance carriers. We're happy that a lot of businesses have committed to provide our first responders and volunteers uh, with sustenance, Culver's, Firehouse Subs, Burger King, Four Rivers Smokehouse, Anna Maria Oyster Bar and Texas Roadhouse. And we think many, many more will want to come and also offer assistance. Uh, for those who are coming in as either first responders or linemen, uh, Bucky's is giving away meals and soft drinks. If you stop in their Daytona location, uh, you'll be able to avail yourself of some really good stuff there. Uh, we're continuing, as, as uh, Kevin has said, you know, these first 72 hours are really life safety and then uh, working to restore the, the main uh, services, power, fuel, and communications. And there's massive numbers of people on the ground working 24-7 to do that. Uh, of course, it's too early to know exactly what the needs of, me now of everybody is David Jolly, uh, MSNBC political analyst, a former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with the party. David, uh, you know, you, you're a politician. Uh, you ran for office in the state of Florida. Um, I don't know if you served in Congress when uh, DeSantis was a Tea Party freshman congressman. I but did. I did. what you understand, I think, better than anyone else, I worked in politics for a while, um, but I think you understand it better than I do, is that there are two kinds of ways to run for office. There is paid media, where you purchase an ad, you purchase sure. ad time on TV, you, you know, send out postcards, everything like that. that's paid media. And then there's earned media. Earned media sure. is way more valuable. It's far more valuable. It's when you can get unpaid media. It's when you can get the media to pay attention to you and to watch you doing something that's only positive, where there's no negative spin attached to it, where you don't have to pay for it. It's not an ad. That was like yeah. huge earned media. And I think DeSantis understands that the earned media that he gets from doing these press conferences is very valuable to him politically. Let's just be clear, right? Am I wrong? Am I right sure. about that? Oh, you're exactly right. Look, a, a governor or a president at a time of crisis and tragedy uh, is it has the opportunity to project leadership and strong leadership. And, you know, in the in the early days, that leadership really goes unquestioned. Uh, but as the days go by, that leadership does get evaluated. And so, yeah. look, I, I think there's a lot of heat coming towards Ron DeSantis for a couple of reasons. Uh, he is now a Republican governor who needs one person to help him, and it's Joe Biden. Mm. And and he, he needs the help of Joe Biden. And then he also needs the help of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, because there will be an aid request that the Congress has to approve, likely when they approve a final appropriations bill in early December. Ron DeSantis knows that the Florida economy cannot absorb the tragedy that just hit. The federal government and Washington will need national Democrats to agree to help Ron DeSantis. And so while the projection of strength now is important for protecting human life and recovery uh, of those who might be missing or stranded, what will happen in the coming days is Floridians and the nation will realize that Florida is not in a place economically to absorb the tragedy that just happened. 
Hurricane Ian, if Florida had to absorb it, it would wreck Florida's economy. Yep. It would destroy what is left of a home insurance market that is already teetering on the brink of default. And it would expose the, the misbalance, if you will, the lack of balance between how we spend money on certain priorities. Joy, you, you raised the analogy or, or the focus on the fact that this is a governor who just spent money to evict migrants from the state of Texas to mm. Martha's Vineyard. Governor Ron DeSantis asked for $18 million, $18 million to evict migrants. Today, his wife, in announcing what will soon become the Casey Fund, this humanitarian fund that his wife will go around the state ensuring Florida, uh, Florida displaced residents receive some aid, was proud to announce a million and a half to $2 million. Think about that. This is where mm -hmm. the heat's coming. The heat's coming what? because this is a governor who is the administrator of an economy that's on the brink of collapse, who has spent money on priorities that don't support Floridians. And I while today we focus on his executive leadership, there will be hard questions coming. And, and by the way, it's not even executive leadership. He is simply, all he has to do now is open up his arms and receive federal money. Let's just be clear. That is the executive sure. leadership. We heard Russell Honore yesterday say, you read the script. Other than that, he's got his person that's in charge of disaster recovery. We'll do that. As you said, this is going to become a federal issue. Those of you who have not lived in Florida don't understand. A lot of people buy their homes. They get hurricane insurance. Hurricane insurance is not flood insurance. This was not a windy storm. This was a rainy storm. This was a floody yeah. storm. You have a lot of stagnant water that is destroying property right now. People are going to have to go to FEMA. People are going to have to go to the feds for that money. And when Ron DeSantis was in Congress, and you guys were in Congress, when he was a Tea Party freshman, when New York and New Jersey faced the exact same tragedy, I mean, literally, the subways yeah. in New York were flooded. People were could have drowned in the subway. When Ron DeSantis had the opportunity to make that decision and say, well, should the people of New York and New Jersey, who were hit by a catastrophic hurricane they weren't even used to, they're not even in Florida, they don't use hurricanes, right. he said no. That shouldn't happen. He, Marco Rubio, and other Tea Party um, members, uh, Senate and House, said they shouldn't have that money. It's too expensive. And now, as you said, he's now got to go hat in hand to Joe Biden for aid. Right. It's something he didn't even believe in as a Tea Partier. He is about to have to justify doing something that is antithetical to in his entire ideological narrative. His entire story as a conservative Republican is anti-Washington, <clears throat> that people should absorb their own risk and people should take care of their own lives. Well, in a time of tragedy, people need help. And where Ron DeSantis is a no government conservative, he's about mm. to become a big government Republican. Uh, at the same time that Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio were voting no, I was introducing a national catastrophic fund that said somehow we have to aggregate floods and fires and tornadoes and ice storms and all these other tragedies that befall the American people and figure out how do we absorb the cost to reset people's lives. Ron DeSantis and others said, no, we don't have to do that. That's not our role. And Ron DeSantis led a no government wing of the Republican Party that says, let people be on their own. Mm. Now he's in a position as the governor of having to do something for them. And the only way he can do that, Joy, the only way is by asking for Washington, D.C. to bail him out. Yeah. The interesting thing is what hangs in the balance is his entire political career. He yeah. will be judged by the way he performs and succeeds in this moment. 
but he's not going to be able to do it on his own. Now, I actually think he has the audacity that he will go hat in hand while at the same time insulting Joe Biden and Democratic yeah. leaders, because that's where his politics are. And, and by the way, I just one more thing, because we, we have another guest I want to bring in, but I just want to make this point for the audience to really be clear about this. Ron DeSantis, that $12 million that they used to ship migrants and go to Texas, another state, and take those migrants, that was money that was interest money from COVID relief funds. So he didn't want to use the money for COVID relief. He wanted to use it for that, to, for, for these demonstrations of cruelty, because there actually in the Republican Party is no political reward for compassion. The, the reward that you get in the party right. is for cruelty. It isn't for compassion. Wokeness, wokeness and compassion is considered weakness. And so you don't get a reward for that. And people who have tried to do the compassion thing and the bipartisan compassion thing have suffered for it. Chris Christie, let us not forget, Chris Christie hugged right. President Obama before the 2012 election because after Hurricane Sandy, he understood they needed the money. He embraced President Obama and lost any right. chance that he would ever be president of the United States. Charlie Crist, who is a deeply compassionate man, he is kind of like Joe Biden. He's a huggy guy. He's going to come and give you a hug if you're hurting. He essentially was booted out of the party for being compassionate to voters who were standing in long lines in 2008 for taking right. Obama, Obama stimulus money when, the, again, the economy was collapsing. There isn't a Republican you can think of who's been rewarded for demonstrating compassion. You get rewarded for doing stunts like what DeSantis was doing before and being cruel. Your thoughts? Joy, Joe Biden will come to Florida, and there's only one way that Ron DeSantis should handle that with grace, with hospitality, and with gratitude for the federal government. Now, I don't know if he will do that, and I don't know how long that will last, but that will be a test of his fitness, as you mentioned, as it was for Chris Christie and, and for Charlie Crist. I would also it. say this. Yeah. I, I would say this. It's very, very important. Ron DeSantis said to Joe Biden, you alone, by the stroke of a pen, can ensure FEMA programs 100 or absorbs 100% of their, the cost. Guess what, Ron DeSantis? You alone, by the stroke of a pen, can determine whether you spend the legislature's $18 million to evict migrants from the state of Texas right. to Martha's Vineyard or use that $18 million on Floridians who are displaced That's tonight. Right. Let's including, see if Ron DeSantis will do the right thing. Including in Orlando, the place that you just stripped of $2 billion because That's you wanted right. to punish Disney. Those are the people you got to help now, Ron DeSantis. Can you do that and still be a Republican nominee in 2024? Let's bring in Gina McCarthy. She's a former EPA administrator and former White House climate advisor in the Biden administration. The other issue that we have to deal with, um, and thank you for being here, is this question of places like this, you know, Sanibel and uh, these parts of Florida that are on man-made barrier reefs, et cetera, that are really, you know, tendacious, like they're in a place that is very vulnerable to storms, to superstorms like this, and even to less um, onerous storms. What is the federal government's role in saying, here's some money. Do you just build back what you had and, and continue to try to have development in places that are so vulnerable? Well, first, Joy, thanks for having me. And my heart goes out to the folks in, uh, in Florida who are hurting right now and to all the great responders, first responders who are working hard. Uh, it, Joy, you bring up a, a really tremendously important point. First of all, this, this storm jumped from a Category 3 on Tuesday night to by the end of the day on Wednesday, it was nearing a Category 5. This is the kind of, of disaster that we have been predicting for a long time that relates to the issue of climate change. 
And this means we have to look at where these challenges are that we're facing. What are the vulnerable communities that are always hit hardest? Who are they? How do we be helpful to them? But also, where are we building? What are we thinking about? How do we build and rebuild? in a resilient and adaptive way. So we recognize the challenge of climate change and the threat it poses to not just people, but all of these assets that we have and the billions of dollars that we're going to spend to rebuild. So the trick is every time we build now, we have to recognize the threat of climate change. We have to look at areas like the, the Gulf of Mexico, where the water is warm and where the shallow water in Tampa Bay actually makes it much more vulnerable to storm surge. This should this is not a surprise. This should be prepared for. In fact, Tampa Bay has been known to be one of the most vulnerable cities in the world as it relates to storm surge threats. So we have to be more prepared. And that's why when I worked with President Biden on the bipartisan infrastructure law, when we were spending billions of dollars to reinvest in our infrastructure, he put actual criteria in that said, you know, you have to build to be resilient to climate. Where do you expect to see those challenges? How do we build to make sure that infrastructure lasts? The same that happened with the inflation reduction. Action Act. We have to be smarter, Joy. These are yeah. these are not uh, the kind of disasters that we can think of as being unexpected, and we can no longer be unprepared. Yeah, and and I have to say this, you know, for those who who understand Florida, developers can't be in control of these decisions, and they are 100% in control of these decisions in Florida because of all the money they're putting into politics. A lot has to be rethought, folks. This is why politics is important. This is why who you elect is important because this is what government actually does. I know that people don't get government and they think government is boring and they think government's not important. This is why it's important because when the rubber meets the road and the water is six feet high in your house and everything's destroyed. It is government you have to turn to. And it's it's not about stunts. And if your government is doing stunts to own the libs or to hurt people that you don't like, that isn't government. This is government. David Jolly, Gina McCarthy. Thank you both. We'll be right back. That's tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.